0: Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. I've said time and time again on this podcast, how the United States, when compared to the rest of the world is an infant. I've said it so much that it's probably starting to get annoying, but that doesn't make it any less true. On top of that, Alaska has been part of the United States for just a little over 60 years. That's crazy to me. It's a vast, barren wilderness that is nearly twice the size of Texas. It has been host to some of the most unexplainable paranormal happenings, never mind in the country, but around the world. There are more stories here than I can count, from alien abductions to disappearances to just straight-up monsters. In the last two decades, over 16,000 people have disappeared from there, without a trace. That is an insane amount of people. Sure, it's desolate and frozen for a majority of the year, and even in the warm months, there are parts part of it that never thaw. Its size alone is the perfect place to up and disappear, without even counting weather. I'm sure some of that comes into play, but some of these stories will leave you scratching your head, making a believer even out of the biggest skeptic. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on a journey through America's dark and haunted past as we explore the ghost stories and folklore that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Many of us are familiar with the Bermuda Triangle the infamous spot in the western part of the Atlantic Ocean that has seen many planes and ships mysteriously disappear and is the source of much conspiracy. But did you know that America has another one? Well, America doesn't have Bermuda Triangle. I guess Bermuda has Bermuda Triangle. But it's off the coast of Florida, so that's pretty much America. It's a place where people disappear at a rate that is double the national average. The Alaska Triangle stretches from Ukiagvik to Anchorage and Juneau and has been the center of countless strange occurrences, head-scratching disappearances, and unexplainable sightings. Is there a reasonable explanation for all of this, or is something more otherworldly at play here? Alaska is found on the far northwest of North America and is home to less than a million people. It is undeniably one of the most beautiful places on Earth, and with such a vast landscape of untouched nature, there is no reason not to see why. If you are in search of solitude, incredible wildlife, and long sunny days, Alaska is the place to go. But there is also a dark side to all of this. Alaska's missing persons rate is double the national average, and a significant amount of these disappearances happen in the Alaska Triangle. Since 1988, over 16,000 people have been reported missing. While some of them find their way back, some are never seen again. Many have theorized that this is simply due to the sheer size of Alaska, and it's a valid point. It stretches over 663,268 square miles, and with unforgiving and hostile terrain. That being said, there are things that happen in the Alaska Triangle that cannot simply be explained away by the state's vastness. On July 4th of 2012, the annual Mount Marathon was underway a grueling one-and-a-half-mile race up and down a steep slope of Marathon Mountain. As many as 30,000 spectators gather every year to watch runners compete in what some call the hardest short-distant marathon in the world. 66-year-old Paul Michael Lemaitre, or Lemaitre, it's a French name, and like I've said before, it's a difficult pronunciation, and I am an idiot. Paul Michael Lemaitre of Anchorage, better known as Michael, was runner number 548. It was his first time attempting the Mount marathon, and nothing was going to stop him from getting up that mountain. Not even being told, if you have not been up that mountain before, you should not even consider going, and should go home right now, and you should not even enter the race. A message shared to the marathoners by Tim Lebling at the pre-race safety talk. Michael was a fit guy. He regularly worked out and completed a 12K in the previous month. Despite this... Michael's choice to ignore the warning proved costly. The second wave of runners set off at 3.15 p.m. Michael was among them. Two and a half hours later, Tom Walsh, who was working as the race steward, saw a man clambering up the last section of the ascent. He called out to Tom. How far am I from the top? About 200 feet, Tom called back. Tom then asked the man for his bib number. It was runner number 548, Michael Lamentry. The weather wasn't great that year around this time. A heavy fog had started to set in on the race point. The spot that marked the height of the ascent before the runners needed to start descending was still visible. Tom didn't worry about Michael's ability to compete in the race. He didn't seem to be in any trouble. Tom radioed down to the race officials that bib number 548 would be down in about an hour and a half, and he started his descent back down. But Michael didn't make it back down in an hour and a half. He didn't make it back down at all. When the predicted time came and went, worry among the crowd began to set in. When a reasonable time for Michael to have made it back passed, search and rescue teams were called onto the mountain to try and locate the missing runner, even in the rapidly dropping temperatures and increasing rain. By 2 a.m., an infrared radar-equipped helicopter was scanning the mountainside, but there was no sign of Michael. Searchers on foot were desperate to find him as soon as possible, as he would likely be hypothermic in the current conditions. The Alaska Air National Guard's rescue unit got involved on the morning of July 5th. If anyone would find Michael, it would have been them. A team that specialized in searching for missing hikers or pilots who have been involved in crashes. On top of that, 60 searchers assisted by going up and down the mountain trying to locate Michael. There was not a shoe, not a piece of clothing, not a disturbance in the vegetation along the trail. Nothing. Nothing. His disappearance has dumbfounded all involved and all who hear about Michael's case. How could he have vanished on a three-mile race and not a single trace ever be found? It was as if the mountain, quite literally, swallowed him whole. We need to go back 40 years to the first case that sparked real interest in the Alaska Triangle, though it became better known as more strange things followed. In 1972, a plane-carrying U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs disappeared somewhere between Anchorage and Juneau. It was owned by Pan-Alaska Airways and piloted by 38-year-old Don Jones. Don was an experienced pilot with over 17,000 hours of flight time under his belt, the type of pilot you could trust to fly a political figure and get him where he needed to be safely. Two other passengers were on board along with Boggs, Alaskan Congressman Nick Page and his aide, Russell Brown. The three men were supposed to attend a rally for Nick and Juno. When the time for them to arrive came and went, it was clear that something was very wrong. The plane had left Anchorage at 9 a.m. with the entire flight plan mapped out. It was foggy that day, but with a visibility of one and a half miles, it wasn't serious enough to be a cause for concern. When air traffic control alerted authorities to the missing aircraft, a search was launched immediately. In fact, it was one of the largest searches in U.S. history. 39 days later, it was called off. Even with 50 civilian planes and 40 military aircrafts at their disposal, no trace of either the passengers or the plane was ever found. 3,600 hours of flight time was clocked up in those 39 days, with 325,000 square miles searched. That, coupled with the fact that the plane's entire route had already been planned out, leaves much confusion about how this plane could have just vanished. Maybe one day this mystery will be solved, but until then, we are left with far more questions than answers. Hey folks, uh, cutting in here in the middle sort of area. Um, yeah, it's a back-to-back week of Haunted American History. Well, I said in the first episode that I was traveling the country, and there's 50 states in the country, so that means I'm going weekly. At least I'm attempting to go weekly. Uh, So far, so good, so we'll see what happens. Otherwise, I'm going to switch back to the bi-weekly thing. If it gets too much, you know, I do still have a full-time job, and family, and all that kind of stuff. The stuff you don't care about. Uh, Anyway, I want to take this time to just thank you all, and... Let you know that your support means the world to me. Best way to support the show is to help it grow. And to do that, just leave a review, a share. Reviews are probably the best thing. So on iTunes or Apple Pod, it's not iTunes anymore. It hasn't been iTunes in probably a decade. That shows you just how out of touch with everything I am. Anyway, leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is you listen to the show. For those of you interested, I do have a Patreon. I'd like to give a shout to my newest patrons, Will, Nick, Victoria, and Jen. Thank you guys so much for joining. And uh, if you'd like to join the Patreon, patreon.com slash history. You get early releases, ad-free episodes, and I'm starting a horror memorabilia giveaway, which is the Chris Feinstein fire sale. Get it all out of my house because I need room for this kid. Babies come with a lot of stuff, and people just keep giving you things. It's crazy. Anyway, thank you all so much. I love you all. And uh, let's continue on with Alaska. Bye. Well, not bye, because I'm going to continue on with Alaska. So, Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion. It's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. There was heavy media coverage of Hale Boggs' disappearance due to his political position, But years earlier, there had been a missing plane with far more casualties. On January 26th, 1950, a Douglas C 54 Skymaster carrying eight crew members and 36 passengers, which included two civilians and a woman with her young son, departed Anchorage at around midday. It was bound for Great Falls, Montana, but the aircraft never made it. The flight was supposed to take eight hours. The last time any contact was made with the C-54 was two hours into the journey. The plane was part of the first strategic support squadron, which is why most of the people on board were military members. An initial attempt to depart had been made, but was called off due to technical issues. Several hours later, they took off. Two hours into the flight, the first scheduled check-in came as expected. They had flown over Snag Yukon, and the pilot reported there were no issues to report. The next check-in was supposed to take place over Ashenik, Yukon, but no communication came from the C-54. Once an hour had passed from the aircraft's scheduled landing time in Montana, a search operation was launched. It was named Operation Mike, after the aircraft commander's first lieutenant, Kyle McMichael. 85 aircrafts got involved in the search, with thousands of personnel also joining in. They searched 350,000 square miles, but couldn't see any sign of the aircraft or its passengers. A plane participating in the search actually crashed on January 30th in the McClinton Mountains near Whitehorse, Alaska. There were injuries to the crew members, but thankfully no fatalities. The pilot walked eight miles until he got to the highway and was able to flag down a truck and get help for his crew. Something curious happened on February 2nd. Unintelligible radio signals were heard by two planes and two radio stations in the Yukon area. Some coming from near Asahik, the town that the C-54 was supposed to check into. Unfortunately, attempts to locate these signals or make contact with what was sending them were in vain. Would you believe me if I told you there were two more plane crashes while searching for the C-54? On February 7th, another aircraft from Isleson Air Force Base was looking for the missing C-54 when it crashed into a mountain slope near Ashahick Lake. Like the previous crash, there were thankfully no fatalities. On February 16th, a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 aircraft crashed near Snag. Like the previous two crashes, this third one didn't result in any fatalities either. This crash sparked some false hope when a plane later flying over the crash site, it was briefly mistaken for the missing C-54. Since then, no more has come of this mystery. The search was called off on February 14th, 1950, after the search planes were called off elsewhere. The disappearance of this plane was so bizarre that it has even gotten its own documentary that came out recently in 2022 titled Skymaster Down. The question remains, why were there so many crashes in this area? You can't blame inexperienced pilots. Maybe you can call it a coincidence and blame the terrain? But is there another explanation? For years there have been theories as to why the Bermuda Triangle is so deadly ranging from magnetic fields to wormholes to extraterrestrial activity. Could something similar be going on in the Alaska Triangle? On November 17th, 1986, a Japan Airlines cargo plane was en route from Paris to Tokyo. The Japanese Boeing 747 was carrying Beaujolais wine, a French wine that I hope I pronounced correctly. Please, wine connoisseurs, don't come after me. When the plane was flying over Iceland on its way to Anchorage at 5.11 p.m., two unidentified objects suddenly appeared to the left of the aircraft. The crew had witnessed them suddenly appear from below the plane before closing in, seemingly escorting the aircraft. These objects had no resemblance to any earthly aircrafts. Each had two rectangular sections of bright glowing nozzles, with the rest of them not visible in the darkness. Captain Terucci could even feel the heat coming off of these UFOs when they got close to the plane, with the entire cabin being lit up by the light they emitted. Those two flying objects did disappear at approximately 5.23 p.m., but then a third one appeared. It was far larger and shaped like a disc. The cargo plane had been in contact with Anchorage Air Traffic Control, who requested that an oncoming United Airlines flight can confirm the unidentified air traffic. When it was able to see the cargo plane at roughly 5.51, no other objects were visible in the air. Captain Tarucci later drew the objects he had seen. He explained that they were square with two rectangular sections that seemed to be made of some sort of glowing, bright nozzles or thrusters with the dark sections in the middle. The third object was described by the captain as a pale band of light that was mirroring their movements, altitude, speed, and direction. Captain Tarucci again contacted air traffic control regarding the object, but they could see nothing on the radar. The cargo plane was now approaching Fairbanks, which is when the captain got a closer look at the object. The city lights illuminated it, revealing a massive disc-shaped outline. Captain Tarucci described it as twice the size of their aircraft. It was only Tarucci who saw it, though. It appeared out of his first officer's field of view. Still, the object was not picked up by Fairbanks radar. The other planes in the sky during that time reported no similar sightings. The cargo plane safely landed in Anchorage at 6.20 p.m., Captain Taruchi stuck by what he had seen, saying that the object was a UFO in his official report. In December of that same year, he gave an interview to two Kyoto news journalists. After the interview, Japanese airlines grounded Teruchi for talking to the media and he was given a desk job. He did get back to piloting several years later. After a three-month-long investigation, the Federal Aviation Administration released their findings they concluded that the FAA did not have enough material to confirm that something was there. They were accepting the descriptions by the crew, but were unable to support what they saw. There was some skepticism around Teruchi and his previous UFO claims. A UFO researcher named Philip Klass looked into the whole situation for his book, The UFO Invasion. He concluded that Teruchi was a UFO repeater, it turned out that Teruchi had previously claimed two other UFO sightings before the November incident. Whether or not you choose to believe Teruchi's claims, other completely unrelated flights have reported similar incidents in the stretch of Alaska. In January of 1987, Alaska Airlines Flight 53 witnessed a fast-moving object on their weather radar. The plane was flying from Nome to Anchorage. When they noted the object... Flight 53 was around 60 miles west of McGrath and sitting at 35,000 feet. Could this object have been a plane? Well, no. The fastest plane, a Blackbird, can fly at speeds of 2,259 miles per hour. That is incredibly fast, but the object far exceeded that speed. The pilot and first mate were not able to visibly see the object, but the radar noted the distance increasing between them, and it was at a very fast rate. Every time the radar swept around, approximately once a second, the object was five miles further. That meant it was traveling at a speed of 18,000 miles per hour. He confirmed with the air traffic control tower that the object exceeded their 50-mile and 100-mile radar in the matter of seconds. That same month, a U.S. Air Force KC-135 jet was flying from Anchorage to Fairbanks when it observed a large dome-shaped object. The pilot estimated it to be just about 40 feet from the jet. It was near them for a short time before disappearing. These pilots had no contact and likely no knowledge of Taruchi's claims. Yet, they all witnessed UFOs during their short period of time in a similar area. When you think of Alaska, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I asked my wife this question, and her answer was Santa Claus. I thought that was stranger than anything I've ever discussed here, but she told me that when she visited Alaska, she made a stop at Santa Claus Village in North Pole, Alaska a Santa-themed gift shop, so I guess that checks out. I think Bigfoot, so you tell me. Who's weirder? There are many animals that call Alaska home. In my opinion, there are none cuter than the otter. Anytime I think of an otter, I'm brought back to when I was a kid and used to watch Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas over and over. Anyone else remember that? I can still sing every word to barbecue. Lives my spirits, I swear it never fails. Sorry. They're like little stuffed animals floating along in the river, giving hugs to each other. You probably can't imagine that sea otters could ever be connected with a creepy legend, but the Tinglet people have a legend about these playful creatures that will send shivers down your spine. The legend of the Kushtaka. Otters are a mammal generally native to the North Pacific Ocean. They are playful in nature, similar to dogs, the puppies of the ocean. While we might think these animals are the sweetest little things ever... The Tinklet people have a legend about them that will most definitely keep you up at night. Sometimes terrifying things come in cute and cuddly packages. The Tinglet believe that some otters are actually shapeshifters that look like men. These creatures have an evil purpose. To trap their victims' souls and prevent them from reincarnating. It certainly wouldn't be the first time a cute face has been used to lure people into almost certain doom. This is why the Child's Play movies were so popular. There's something about an adorable little thing trying to kill you that people find attractive. The legend reads, as you're walking through your village or hunting in the woods or fishing in the sea, a man or a group of men approach you. These men look just like your kinsmen, and you don't have a clue that they're really Kushtaka. In some cases, these malevolent creatures appear when you're lost or injured, and claim that they intend to rescue you. However, they lead you deeper into the wilderness and either tear you to pieces or turn you into a kushtaka, which will prevent your soul from being able to reincarnate. No, thank you. Groups of kushtaka are especially dangerous. They might lure you toward them by screaming or making noise that sound like women or children in distress, but once they see you coming, you'll never escape. The very cuteness of otters is what makes the Alaskan kushtaka so dangerous according to the Tinglet people. Because we are so drawn to their playful nature, it's easy to miss the fact that these shapeshifters really want to consume our souls and condemn us to spend eternity wandering a frozen tundra. Luckily, there is one safeguard against the Kushtaka capture. Alaska's second cutest animal is one that is also most plentiful around the region. Dogs. Man's best friend coming in clutch once again. I guess you could say that the Kushtaka are an example of Alaska as a whole. A place that lures you in with its majestic beauty. But if you aren't careful, it will make sure you never leave. I'm Christopher Feinstein. And this is Haunted American History.